Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassan, and I'm the Medical Director for the American Academy of Pediatrics Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. And I'm excited to share today's conversation, which is part of our Clinical Practice Guideline Implementation Series. Throughout this series, you'll be able to hear from pediatricians across the country, many of whom have been instrumental in developing the CPG, or who have been out there in practice and working on obesity care and treatment. Our hope is that you can listen to these conversations and be inspired to think about how you might be able to integrate or improve obesity care and treatment within your practice. Stay tuned. I'd like to welcome everyone to our podcast today, and I'm delighted to be speaking with my friend, Dr. Chris Bowling, who is a pediatrician, the former chair of the obesity section, and a member of the Clinical Practice Guideline Writing Group. And um, Chris, I'm so delighted you've taken time today to just be with me and to get a chance to talk about uh, our our journey in uh, taking care of kids and their families with obesity. Thanks, Sandy. I've really been looking forward to talking with you also. And a a journey is a good way to describe it. It's been sort of a circuitous journey over these years, especially these last few years with the pandemic. No kidding. And, um, you know, I think I feel like I've been on a learning curve ever since the first child that walked into my clinic with obesity. I feel like I have never for one minute stopped learning about obesity, what it is, how to help the children. There seems to be uh, every day I, a patient tells me something I didn't know about their experience of obesity, all the learning that we've, we've had over these years from both the pediatric researchers and, and the researchers in adult medicine. So I think it's been a tremendous journey and for me, a, a learning journey. It sure has been. Do you, remember, do you remember when we first met to talk about this? Were we doing some kind of community program? No, we were actually, we met in a hotel room in um, Washington, D.C. when we were trying to get the HEDIS measure together around obesity. Oh, so yeah. we had both been doing a little bit of practice. We'd both been doing a significant amount of practice in it. Those early days were really interesting, but we met in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. when we were trying to get together HEDIS measures, asking people to use BMI and BMI percentile and to just start discussions around nutrition and activity. Yeah, it seems like a really long time ago. I know we've worked on community projects together over the years and policy together over the years. And uh, I think all with the aim of really remembering the kids and thinking about those children and adolescents we see in our practice and just this deep, deep desire to just help them in whatever way we can. Yeah, there's sort of a forgotten group of kids even today. You know, there still is weight bias out there. There's still stigma. It's just a tough disease to be dealing with. Yeah. And I think over the years, I remember when I first started, I was seeing mostly adolescents and uh, over the years uh, began seeing younger and younger and younger kids. So finally I had a special clinic just for babies uh, in my practice. (laughs) You know, it's interesting too. You, You mentioned that definitely there were a lot of adolescents, but I also remember in those early years, that some of the things that really got people's attention was when you got those younger kids with severe obesity. We all knew there was something really going on with those kids that was different 
those kids with severe obesity who are presenting to us. And I just remember some of those really young kids who had issues that really were the ones that got a lot of people's attention. And over the years, you know, I, I talk about a learning curve. And when we I first started, and I think it was true for you, people were very focused on obesity prevention. And yet in clinic, we kept seeing children that really needed treatment. And I think over the years, we've really been trying to understand obesity um, as a disease and, and the treatment component of obesity. And so I wondered if you could spend some time and just sort of reflect on your own experience and how your own uh, patient experience has maybe changed your perception of what obesity is and maybe how your practice has responded to that. You know, I think your commentary about it being, you know, accepting it as a disease is really important. And, you know, it's not universally accepted even today as a real illness. But I think that's been the real transition for me. First, you know, we all went into this kind of thinking with the same biases that everybody else did about this being some sort of personal failing and some issue around parenting, some issue around something else going on. When really, you know, embracing it as a disease and trying to come up with strategies for dealing with disease has been really changed. And that's the one of the big things that I've seen. In those early years, you really just didn't even know what to do. We would say things like exercise more and eat less. Well, then that, that doesn't take very long to say that. It doesn't really accomplish much. You know, and I, I remember looking at children and having read that adults were getting liver disease or sleep apnea and then starting to ask those questions of my kids and being sort of horrified that I had young children with liver disease from obesity or, you know, adolescents that, you know, we needed to treat for sleep apnea from obesity. And I think it's the pathology that results from obesity that was so striking to me because these are the, the things that as a medical student, I thought I would see only in adults and to see this pathology being driven farther and farther down into childhood really gave me pause and gave me gave me respect for the fact that it is a disease and it's a chronic disease. And so the management is not with a, with a short burst of prevention or treatment. This is a disease like any other chronic disease. It has to be managed longitudinally over, over time. You know, it really has been revolutionizing pediatrics. You're you're right. How many pediatricians really thought that they were going to be managing high blood pressure and dyslipidemia, sleep apnea? You know, those are things that really we always thought were just the bailiwick of our internal medicine colleagues. And it really has driven itself down into the pediatric population. And pediatric obesity is what's really caused that to happen. Chris, um, not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, maybe, and ask you when you see a child uh, or an adolescent with their family and you know, and, and they have obesity, how do you, how do you talk about obesity to them? What, what do you say? You know, I, the first step I think is always trying to get past that blaming issue. You know, this is not their fault. This is not a personal shortcoming. This is really about their body, their health, their happiness, um, and their choices in the matter. It's really more about trying to um, let them know that you're on their side. So many of them come in, especially, and I know you know this, they come in with that expectation, I'm about to get lectured again about what I've done wrong and how I need to change and not enjoy anything I used to enjoy. And I got to wor work out and I got it. It's all this stuff that weight management is layered with. And 
I really try from the get go to not get into that, um, to really say like, you know, this is about them. This is about their health and their happiness. And do you talk, do you talk about obesity as a chronic disease with them? You know, maybe not so much as a negative thing. I try to express to them that like our patients with asthma, like our patients with EHD, we have ways to treat this. We have things that we can do. And, you know, just like with asthma, there are, you know, behavioral things that can modify the illness. We never blame somebody for having asthma, but we try to to, to manage it as, as an illness. So I think... Yes, we try to, I try to bring up some of the concepts. I don't know if I say you have a chronic disease to every patient. Right. I think there's some that that really resonates with, but I, I, I try not to make it sound either. I'm trying to help them know that there are things they can do, but also know that this is something that they can manage. I think it's so important just right, right out of the gate, the first thing about just removing blame and guilt. Because with blame, when they feel blame, they often feel guilty or the parents feel guilty about this. And I think just sort of removing that um, and helping them understand that, you know, they've been struggling and you're going to, and, and I always would say, I'm, I'm here and we're going to work through this and we're going to work towards your health. And I also think I use, I think asthma is a kind of a, a great example because I, people are familiar with asthma and wouldn't think of blaming the child for asthma, but yet know that asthma has to be, there are things that you can do and you do them over time and, you know, you, you get things under control. So I think that's a great example of that. You know, as you're moving into treatment, what, what do you tell the patients about what to expect in treatment? Like what, what are they, do you talk about like what this might be like for them, what you're going to do? Yeah. And I always like to, as much as possible, put them in charge of the when and what, you know, like I, I really try to say there are a lot of different ways you can approach this. There are a lot of different types of nutrition plans. There are a lot of different types of, now we know medications and surgeries and all sorts of ways that we treat obesity, you know, just all sorts of treating the comorbidities not only just treating um, the weight management stuff, but but there are lots of ways that, to manage things. And I always say, you know, that it's going to be up to them to find the system that works for them. I, I think everybody's a little bit different. And this is one of those processes that you really do need to personalize it and help them help them figure out a plan that's going to work for them long term. I even started asking my patients, you know, we were talking about follow up is instead of um, assigning them a follow-up period, I started asking them, when would you like to come back? Oh, absolutely. I found that, you know, when I said, when you when would you like to come back? And they gave me a time, they would come back yep. when they said it, you know? Yep. So, and it yep. also gave me a clue as to what they were thinking in terms of how much support they, they wanted or needed. Yeah. You know, I'm a big believer in the use of motivational interviewing. I mean, I just think it's been a game changer for me in a number of different areas in pediatrics. And, you know, I use it all the time for every every patient, every encounter. I'm always asking permission and asking what they want to do. And that's like the final piece of it as they're walking out the door, you know, because they'll all say like, well, you're the, usually it's the parents that will say, well, when do we come back? And I'm like, well, you know, let's talk about that. When do you want to come back? And a lot of times 
a lot of times with that, I'll give them sort of a menu of options if they just sort of look at me blankly. Like, you know, most of my patients like to see me back somewhere between two and four weeks. What would you like to do? And so, we, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I find that, you know, like everything, there's always other follow-up with certain patients than others. But I think that makes a big difference to them. They know what's going on with their life. They know how, how this fits in, where it is in their hierarchy of, of priorities. And when you're doing, uh, we'll go back to sort of the beginning of the visit. And you're, you're exploring, you know, you've identified that, that maybe the BMI is high. You, we talk about things that happened in their family history. How do you then approach that point where you're trying to find out both what does this mean to them and, and what they would like to work on? Like, what are some words that you use to really get to that, those, those initial goals? I always feel, especially with those adolescents, that you need to give them time when you ask them. And sometimes it's lack of words and just letting them sort of sit with it and figure out, giving them time, trying not to let whoever's with them fill the awkward gap with, with a suggestion because um, they've been told what to do the whole way through this. I also really rely on a lot of my motivational interviewing habits that are hopefully ingrained. I like rather than saying, do you want to do this? I, I want them to say like, well, you know, here are some options. Here are some things that we could do. What do these really appeal to you? I think sometimes some when you're really struggling with getting kids to talk with you about it, it is sometimes helpful too to even rely a little bit on some either or question, you know, like, do you like group or individual? Do you like online or in person? It's actually a really encouraging finding post pandemic. Most kids do not want to do things online anymore. I, I, I can't get over it. It's like, yeah, I don't want that online thing. I'm like, okay, well, that that's good. That's good. Because before the pandemic, they all wanted online. And now it really feels like, yeah, we're kind of done with that. And so they seem, yeah, a lot of them seem to be craving that. But I, those are some of the things that I'll say, like, do you want something that gives you a lot of choices? Or do you want something that doesn't give you many choices, that tells you what to do? Do you want an exercise program that involves um, being with other people and playing a game? Or do you want something, are you more of an individual type person? So, you know, it's, I think it really is tough sometimes to get kids to talk. Uh, so I find that one technique that helps a little bit. Also, too, being able to, you know, the, the, the readiness ruler, I think, is a, is a great MI tool. You know, the, the old one, like, how important is this to you and how, how confident are you that you can do it? And the confidence part of that, like, okay, you just said that you want to walk your dog every day for 45 minutes every day. How confident are you on a scale from zero to 10 that you're going to be able to do this? And I just think that opens up a lot of discussions. It can give them really concrete, concrete, but still open-ended things to, to reflect upon. So what you're really, you know, at the base of all this is really we're having a dialogue with our patients. We're not just being we prescriptive. Are. We are dialoguing our way through what obesity means, what it might mean to them, what it means to them, what they're thinking about, what some options are that we may give them on our part, what options they might like. And this is really a, I like to say it's a relationship-based dialogue that we're having with our patients. And isn't it like remark? We never we don't get to talk about very much. It's remarkably rewarding as an area of pediatrics. Yes, I love these kids. Yeah, I love these kids. I love the process. It is a complete schedule buster on your on your schedule for the day sometimes because I do it within the context 
yeah. of a busy practice. I, I love these kids. And I walk out of those visits just usually really, really happy. And and I love them saying, boy, this is nothing like I thought it was going to be. You know, they I think they're just happy that, you know, sometimes hopefully they found an ally as opposed to some one more person who's harassing them. You know, I, I love that you say you love the kids because I love my patients. And and people were always struck by that because I'd always get the question, like, how can you keep doing this? You know, I did weight management. That was my practice. How can you keep doing this? And I said, I love my patients. I every and every patient and family is is different. Yes, their BMI might be high, but they're different. They have different situations. They have different emotional responses. It's it's and um I just feel like when you see, when you're listening to a, a child or adolescent and you feel that connection and you literally see their eyes light up and they see you're really feeling like you're communicating, there's nothing better than that to me. I agree 100%. You know, and it's really hard to practice weight bias when you know somebody personally. You know, I think it's it's when we talk about, you know, bias and inherent prejudice and things like, you know, when we talk about it in, you know, inherent racism and things like that, it's like when you get to know people individually, it's really changes the way you interact with them. And the more contact we have with our kids who struggle with this, you get rid of all those presuppositions and those those prejudices and biases that you have against people who have obesity. You're making me really think about something I mentioned at the beginning, my own learning curve. And it, when I learned to ask the patient why a behavior was working for them, how it was working for them, they would say something like, well, we're eating fast food five nights a week. And, you know, your, your, your first response might be to say something about that. But when I learned to say to the, the child and family, how is that working for you? What's good about that for you? My world, I, I felt like I was in a whole different world. You know, you you asked what's the what what are some words, what are some questions you use? And what you just said made me remember one of those questions that I always have is I say, you know, like, okay, we've just we've established that you're not where you want to be with your weight status. You know, you're not where you want to be. Tell me the one thing that you think is keeping you from getting to the weight status you want where you want to be. And that for me. Yeah, a lot of times you'll get things like that, like we eat a lot of fast food or I drink a lot of sugary drinks. And and sometimes those these are like huge payoff sort of things you're like, you know, in, in the back of your mind, you're going, yes, because, you know, like if we can get rid of sweetened beverages, that's going to have an enormous impact on their life. And so yeah, sometimes they tell you things and you're like, OK, well, we don't that may not make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but there are other, but there, sometimes they, a lot of times, more often than not, I think they identify really good targets to work on. When it's coming out of their mouth, that really pretty great. They also uncover the constraints they're working with at home. Like my patient who was eating out fast food five nights a week had a sibling who was pretty out of control at meals. Yep. Parents default here was to drive through and feed the meals because everybody would eat. The kid was in relative control and that was their solution. And when once you know that, you're not going to be judgmental about eating fast food. You're going to try to help the patient solve the problem. Of right. How do we have family meals at home? Is it possible to do that? 
Um, so, you know, why is that behavior working for you has, has always been one that I feel like I learned so much when I asked that patient. And the other thing you're making me remember now is what will happen if, like, mm -hmm. you decided maybe that you want to eliminate all sugar beverages. And so the question of, so what will happen if you do that at home? You know, and sometimes, you know, you get the answer that, oh, it'll work just fine. And sometimes you get the answer, well, you know, their teenage brother will just go nuts because he wants his sugar beverages. And then you have a whole area that you can help them with. So sort of asking those kind of questions I found was always gave me insight. And, you know, you said something, I don't know if you use the words non-judgmental, but I think it's really important to be sort of curious about what they're doing and compassionate. And when you start to get this information that they're telling you, they're making, usually they're making the best decisions they can with the parameters they have in their lives, you know? And, and I really was struck by the fact that you said that it's, you really, it's hard to be judgmental when you're having that kind of conversation with a person. Right. If you can empathize with them, right. Right. you're there. Yeah. You know, this is obesity is a chronic disease. I compare it sometimes to, you know, relapsing and remitting chronic disease. You know, we have those times when things are going really well and, you know, they're, they're, they're making change and it's working. And then we have those times when, you know, things aren't working so well, things happened in their lives and we have a relapse. What do you tell patients when they're sort of had a setback? That's kind of exactly what I say to them. You know, I always view them. I'm someone who's at what would be considered a normal BMI now, but I, you know, you don't want to put your own experience onto everybody else. That can be kind of a dangerous thing to do. But I do sometimes in that circumstance say, you know what? Yeah, like I say, I currently have a normal BMI, what's considered to be a normal BMI, but I always view myself as someone who has obesity. It's just, it's my chronic disease to manage. And it is... You know, something that I, I think we talk about that a lot. It's like, we're going to have periods where we go up and down in weight status, periods where it affects our health, where it doesn't affect our health. It is going to be something that's always with you. And I think that that is an important message to bring up because, you know, that sets the whole tone for this is not a six-week diet that you're going to exit from. You really have to back against that notion. You know, like, how long am I going to do this? Your whole life? You know, and it's because it's because it's not going to go away. This is going to be something we're just going to manage. And I think, you know, I think honestly, even though the pandemic absolutely destroyed our BMI numbers, as we know, I think we're beginning we're beginning to kind of grasp that a little bit more. I think find more people who say, "Oh yeah, cat, we're not doing a diet; we're changing lifestyle." I think I don't know that very anecdotal observation on my part. But I just feel like we've moved the needle on that maybe a little bit where people understand that this is something that's not just going to go away. This is going to be something that you are going to have relapses with, that you're going to you know, have periods where things do great and then you're going to have the holidays or you're going to have the European trip or you're going to have the grandma who is the great saboteur. You're going to have those challenges. You know, and I got to the point where if a family kind of knew that I think we all do this. We all think we'll just roll with the stresses, like in our own lives. I do this. I think, you know, you're going along, you're going along and stress comes and you think, well, I'll just roll with it. I don't really plan for what I'm going to do about my nutrition or activity during a time of stress. I figure it'll, it'll just, 
I'll just deal with it. But, you know, when families get stressed, to me, the first two things that go out the window on in, when they're stressed are nutrition and activity. And so we would actually come up with, with plan B for families. Like, what, what can you do when you're under stress? You know, and I, 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 some of those people who say like, oh, I was under a lot of stress, I lost weight. That is not my experience, nor is it the experience of a lot of um, my patients. You know, that's like, if I'm not keeping my eye on the ball, you know, we talk about that. It's like, you know, you've got to really, those are the times when things get really out of whack. We do have to prepare for those things. So that is, I agree with you. I think that's a really good thing to anticipate with them. Well, you know, we talk a lot now about social determinants of health and their impact on obesity. And I think we we may have always felt that, but now we're being very explicit about that. And I think in, in our discussion about being non-judgmental and compassionate, I also think we have to give people affirmation for surviving a tough situation. Like if something is tough and maybe their weight went up, but they experienced the death in the family or a divorce or some some really life stressor, just getting through that to me, to affirm a patient, you got through it. You got right. to, this is, it's, you're, you're here, you're here now, we're going to work on it, you know, and not to feel guilty about. Wasn't there something gratifying, like, you know, like the first time I was reading the stuff on by Felidia and Anda about um, toxic stress, you know, to learn that that came out of our area of work, you know, that those were patients with obesity who they were studying. I was like, okay, this really is rather, you know, rather affirming that, you know, what we're seeing, that this is a affected by stress, it causes stress, it's this feedback loop that, um, you know, it really is a major issue and it's a major physiologic occurrence. Obesity is a byproduct of stress and it triggers stress and it triggers stress hormones and it causes methylation and it causes histone activation and it causes all those things that we know are associated with activation by social determinants that cause genetic changes. So it just was really, to me, I guess when I first read that stuff, I was like, wow, this ties together a lot of different parts of my professional world. And I think it gives you a lot of sort of respect to the situation your patients are in. You know, and it also gives you a reason, yet another reason to have them drive the bus on this one, because you don't know exactly what's going on in their life. You, the timing, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that when we did the, um, the HEDIS measurement that I was talking about earlier, we, we were going with what we knew at the time, you know, like when this comes up, you need to talk about this at every visit. Mm-hmm. And we do need to bring it up. We need to not ignore it, but we also need to give our parents and patients space like knowing there are going to be times when they are not ready to work on this. There are going to be other times that they're ready to go and you need to, you need to move with them. Um, and it's not going to be the most convenient time. It's not going to be the, the easiest for everybody, but it's going to be when they're ready. And to kind of acknowledge that and to be able to be responsive. I think that's been one of the challenges of doing this in primary care. Is, you know, I don't want this patient saying I'm ready to do something and then they have to wait three months to see me to talk about it. I think they have to they have to be able to move. And it's just an acknowledgement of them being in control of it. Yeah. And I think that that's something that helped me was, you know, we we've focused a lot on the BMI curve and on the comorbidities and rightly so, but you know, if you 
if you step back a little and look at the whole child, you know, sometimes you really are working on peer relationships for school success and the weight becomes the caboose on that train, right? And yep. so to me, part of the, the, the rewarding part of this was being able to step back, look at the whole child and say, is this whole child, are we making progress with that whole child? You know, and progress can be made in many different ways. And I, I used to actually use that phrase with my patients. I said, you know, we were in, busy looking at school performance or maybe, you know, some physical activities. I said, weight is the caboose on this train. You know, you get lined up these other things, you know, the weight will, will come, you'll get healthy. But the other thing you made me think about when you said about how happy you were to see the patients, I used to tell my team, if, if, if the patient doesn't leave happier than they came, then ask yourself, you know, maybe how you could have made that happen. And happier means maybe that they were listened to, that somebody cared about them, that they got to say what they thought about uh, their own life or take charge of something. So I think it's really important that it's not incongruous to be talking about feeling happy in the context of these visits, I don't think. Or am I just crazy to say that? No, I think you're spot on. And I honestly think that that ties into something else that you mentioned just a second ago. You know, that that line about like, we want you to be, what's the right weight for me? Well, the weight, right weight status is where you're happy and healthy. You know, that was our, our buddy Fatima Cody Stanford's line that she uses with her patients. And I just completely, you know, stolen that with all my patients. But, you know, it's the comment, I think it, it, it makes, it says something too about, you know, some of the, 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 the concerns that we have with BMI, you know, our, if we're focused on BMI, BMI is not full indicator on health. And I, I think our, the people who push back a little bit on, on obesity care, saying like, you know, you're healthy at any weight, there's, a, there, there's some truth in what they're saying. It's like, this is you know, it, it, this is not just about BMI. This is about health. This is about happiness. This is about helping people be who they are and who they want to be. And, you know, that's going to be a different BMI status for different people. I think our job as providers is to be honest and to look at things from a health perspective, but also know that weight and BMI are just one aspect of this person and that we can't treat it in a vacuum. That, you know, there, there's there much more, BMI is a vital sign in my world. And that, you know, uh, the heart rate or a blood pressure or a, or a respiratory rate is different in different situations. And it means different things to different, to different individuals. So, and, and the trajectory is important too. You know, if your resting heart rate is coming down, that's also a sign of health can mean other things too. So I think it just, we have to put BMI in context and it's not the be all end all, but it's a great way to tip off the discussion that we need to be having with our patients. You know, you're, you're really making me think how often we, we have to move between a very detailed focus, like, you know, what is your cholesterol? What is your BMI? And then a more expansive, inclusive focus is how are you doing as a person in your life? And I think it Good really what you're, you're, you're really pointing out here, Chris, is that movement. I think we're, we need to be flexible enough so we can move through those different perspectives as the patient needs us to, right? There's a time clearly to be very detail focused on those 
vital signs on those labs, on those results. And there's a time to be focused on the more expansive picture of how is this child doing in the context of their lives. And that actually, you know, it demands a lot of flexibility from us to be moving in between, you know, back and forth between those perspectives. But I, but I think it's needed. I think we need to be able to do that. Sandy, I have a question for you on that. Do you feel, when I talk about liking obesity care, I always preface it with, I am a chaos lover. I like to bring order out of chaos. And if you're not somebody who gets a charge out of that, obesity care is overwhelming. It's macro, it's micro, it's this organ system, it's that organ system, it's this nutrition plan, it's that nutrition plan, it's this set of comorbidities, it's that one, it's this age. And you know, like, how does a four-year-old girl have anything in common with a 17-year-old boy? You know, like, it's just, it's a mess. And you have to be someone, I think, I think some of our colleagues are like, yeah, I I, I don't like that. That's not, that's not my thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, for those of us who kind of get a charge out of it is you have to be someone who likes to embrace the chaos and tries to bring some order out of that chaos. When I first heard you say that about chaos, I, I was nodding my head because I think that's a, a really big sort of part of it. And for me, obesity care to me exemplifies the art of medicine as almost nothing else does, because you're bringing your expertise and your highly technical knowledge into a situation of complexity, of real life, you're in the heart of the patient's life and family, and you're, 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 you're intaking a lot of information, and then you're looking for the thread yep. that they give you, that you can start to draw on, move them a little bit more toward health, and, and you're looking for that thread through that dialogue we're talking about, and you're you're facilitating that discussion with compassion. So to me, honestly, Chris, if you had an answer to your question, to me, obesity care really exemplifies to me what I think of as the art of medicine. It is so nuanced. Sometimes it's just these little tiny things that that you are able to glom onto and make progress with. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that through all our, with all the complexity and maybe chaos, I think that... Um, these patients have been incredibly rewarding for me to take care of. I've learned a lot. I feel actually very um, blessed to have the opportunity to have take, taken care of them. Um, so, uh, you know, and maybe that sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I walked into clinic every day looking forward to opening up that door on the clinic room and seeing who was there to see me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. They're yes. great kids. They're they're just awesome kids. Chris, as we wind down our discussion, and you know we've covered the, kind of the waterfront here, but is there anything else you'd like to to say uh, to our audience today? You know, I am really excited about this new clinical practice guideline. I think that it's quite a game changer. It's very different than the expert recommendations, which were great, but those were 15 years ago. There's been so much progress made. And I just think that there's some really cool, concrete suggestions coming out of this thing. And I just hope that our colleagues embrace it and 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 figure out ways to implement it and not be encumbered by it, but be empowered by it. I'm heading toward retirement in my practice. And I've been very gratified that I have younger physicians in the practice, and then a couple of our um, 
practice people, one PA and one MP, who've all said, you know, like, we're going to keep taking care of these kids because we really love them as well. And these are people who have been, you know, been doing academic stuff around it, you know, but they haven't gotten to be a, a part of a clinical practice guideline, but they're ready to embrace it. And I just hope that we can get a lot of people, my situation and another situation in primary care settings to really go for it with this illness that we really need people. Couldn't agree with you more, Chris. And I want to thank you again for being part of this podcast today. My pleasure, Sandy. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Chris Bowling. I hope that you were able to take away some practical strategies on how to move obesity care and treatment forward in your practice. As a reminder, there are many resources to support your capacity building and CPG implementation efforts, which you can find on our website, www.ap.org slash obesity resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.